Hi, you're listening to the Marijuana Solution, and this is Robert Roundtree. Today we have a very special set of guests. We have Ed Deutscher and Lori Bird from Compassionate Care of Florida in Oldsmar, Florida. I found out about Dr. D, as he likes to be called, and Lori Bird from a letter that was posted on Facebook. And this was a letter penned by both of them, and it was called Observations of a Newly Converted Marijuana Physician. I wanted to have them on to kind of break the ice for any physicians that may be interested or concerned about using cannabis in their practice. I think this is going to be some great information for both uh, currently practicing physicians and especially ones thinking about incorporating it into their practice. You were saying about, um, I had mentioned about uh, Shands and, you know, the university physicians not being able to recommend despite they're the ones doing all the research and just got awarded a three and a half million dollar grant. Yes, we received a call from a patient's mom uh, who indicated that her doctor at the university was unable to continue writing medical marijuana recommendations because a directive had come down from USF that the staff physicians had to make a choice. Again, I am new in the industry, but it's my understanding that this disease is a horrific disease and that this little five-year-old girl uh, suffering about 100 to 115 seizures a day, uh, she had been entered into the registry, but the neurologist, the pediatric neurologist had to cancel her orders or face termination. And we were asked to see that little girl. And uh, it's, it's just unfortunate that all of the constraints uh, are affecting us when 71% of us voted yes to amendment two. Yeah, um, geez, that brings up a couple things. Um, first off, you're in the medical profession. It was my understanding as a patient that I put my trust in the medical profession because they followed the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm. And this seems quite harmful to protect your... I understand. I mean, you're protecting putting food on your table. You might lose your job. But this kid may lose their life. So where do you draw the line with policy that is not really patient-friendly as a physician? The doctors are in a sticky situation. I I agree with you. Uh, As as an administrator, uh, I get the calls at our practice. And a number of calls have come in from military veterans. You open the door, Robert. You got me fired up now. Uh, I've received a number of calls from VA patients who are saying, look, uh, I'm on a pain management program here. I want to get off the opiates, but I'm being told that the physicians that work at the VA, because they're federal employees, cannot order medical cannabis, they can't speak the word, and we're being told that if we test positive for anything other than the opiates that the VA is killing us with, 
we are going to be kicked out of the pain management program. So I asked myself, how do we uh, impact the educational process for this state, for the communities, uh, for the patients that need help? Uh, How do we get past that not in my backyard that's my question. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I'm a yeah. veteran myself. I did a stint in the Navy in the first half of the millennia or first half of the first decade of the millennia. I got out in 2005. Um, and I was on the phone earlier today with Jose Belen and we were kind of, you know, we don't have many options if you don't want to use opiates or, other medicine and by by most measures we're still demonized for using cannabis um there was an article i put out today people are still losing their jobs um and with the va sometimes people are still not being treated fairly because they use cannabis um the whole issue surrounding veterans and what has been going on with veterans almost makes my head spin well, it's very, it's very interesting. Uh, you said that because I've, <clears throat> excuse me, dealt with or been approached by a veteran who was wounded, seriously wounded, had several surgeries, and does not like taking the opiates. He's controlled. He told me when he has pain on such low doses, he takes a half or a quarter of a tablet once a day so he can function when he has to, which is really a very low dose. But he was told, because he has high security clearance, he's no longer in the military, but he has high clearance in his job, that he was told, or he knows, that he can't use any of the derivatives of the cannabis, which is interesting. Um, But putting that aside, you know, I, I have some observations that I would like to get to, you know, about working in the field now, which is brand new to me, you know, as we discussed earlier. Yeah. And one other thing about, um, like veterans not taking as much of their medication as what they're prescribed, like what you're saying this gentleman's doing. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are unaware that the VA auto ships you your pills usually a lot of times, including oxycodone. So like, pill bottles start to stack up in people's houses that presents a danger in itself just if you have children around or somebody that may have a substance problem um the fact that he's not allowed to use i haven't heard this one yet because of his security clearance i'm assuming he must be a contractor or something for his work still needing a clearance he works with another friend of mine who's an engineer but you're right he contracts with the government and they build electronic devices. He's a Marine, ex, okay. you know, never an ex-Marine. And what you said is very interesting because he told me that. He said he has drawers filled with it. He stacks it all, all over the place. He doesn't have to get rid of the stuff either. You can't flush it. You can't. Pharmacies won't take it. VA won't take it. So he's on auto ship and he has stacks of the stuff in drawers and closets. Just yeah. Well, and if you were to take it to like the county hazmat place, you, you might raise some eyebrows showing up with all those pills. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they will. I mean, in the bot, I never even knew they had 
prescription pill bottles as big as I've seen on some of the especially combat veterans that get them shipped. I mean, they're about the size of a Yeti cup to the rim. Um, But back to what you were saying about some of the observations that you've been making um, since you've come to take cannabis in as part of your practice. Um, Could you go into some of those with us? What I'm finding is I, I was in a surgical specialty for over 30 years and there was very little pain. It was microsurgery. So I, I really didn't have very much experience prescribing pain medication, uh, tranquilizing medication, that type of medication. But I did work in a big multi-specialty group. So we had all specialties. So I did interact with patients and charts from the primary care doctors and other subspecialties and specialties. And one of the things that's very striking to me is that almost everybody that comes in the office and has been prescribed and is currently prescribed uh, opioids, doesn't want to take them or doesn't take them. So I watch television and read the news, and I hear about the epidemic, yet the people we're meeting who are coming in are almost universally saying, I don't take the Xanax, which is not an opioid, it's a tranquilizer, but I don't take the Xanax, I don't take the um, you know hydrocodone, things like that. It doesn't really work, it wears off, and it doesn't you know really help my pain. And as for anxiety also, they say they have side effects, but that doesn't really get to the core of the problem. So that's one observation, which is is very interesting. Another observation that we're finding is that the stuff really works and the people are coming back. And for the first time in my career, instead of calling with problems or this or that, we're having people call just to say, I feel much better. I've never experienced that in a surgical field where people call the, would call the office actively unsolicited and say, I feel better. Another thing we're observing is that they tell us that they're immediately just leaving, abandoning the use of the tranquilizers or the opioids to the point where sometimes it makes me a little nervous because I really don't want to practice general medicine. But if someone says, well, I've been taking Xanax for years at, at this dose, and the person just stops, I'm saying, uh-oh, what's going to happen here? Because you can have problems if you don't detox. But apparently they're not. We haven't encountered that so far, which is very, very interesting. Another thing that really surprised us is it's only a series of, you know, one or two people, a couple of people really, is that the people who mostly were in pain, chronic pain, are coming back and losing weight. Now, I don't think the medication is doing it as much as maybe they feel better and they're more active. So maybe instead of just sitting, they're getting up and walking or doing other activities. But that's a very interesting observation we've had is the weight. We didn't really observe it. They're calling and telling us that they're losing weight. So those are some very interesting observations we've had. Yeah, the losing weight thing, um, I think you might have hit it on the head because I have 10 herniated discs and I know when I'm in a lot of pain or when I was taking you know, some days 300 milligrams of oxycodone a day, I wasn't doing much of anything. Except suffering. Yeah, no, literally laying around, hoping I could go to sleep and wake up and the next day might be better than this one because it sucked. Mm-hmm. So that definitely makes sense that um, if you become more mobile, you're getting more exercise, that you would lose weight, especially if you had some to lose. As mm-hmm. far as 
the opiates yeah i mean i like i said i was on up to 300 milligrams a day i was taking xanax um that didn't work they gave me klonopin that didn't work you know tramadol trazodone i mean it just goes on and on and all i wanted to do was be off of opiates and then finally i got off of them and the most interesting thing as a patient that I realized from using opiates and then going to cannabis is after I got through the detox period, I realized I wasn't in as much pain as I thought I was when I was taking the opiates. And through research, I discovered that that's because the opiates were basically causing my body to shut down any type of natural anti-inflammatory response or pain relieving response because it no longer felt the need to because my receptors were always being flooded with as much opiates as I could, you know, stomach without dying. So those are those, the opiates are horrible. How now back to to your other point, how does it make you feel as a, a surgeon to now have patients calling you unsolicited to tell you how good they feel? Well, I'll tell you what, it's very good. It's a new phenomenon. And if I think back, you know, I had a very active practice. And when I think back, it was such a rare phenomenon. People would say, oh, if you would ask them, oh, I'm much better. I've improved. And we would always call. But that's a new phenomenon. I love that phenomenon. When they come in here, they're happy, too. And sometimes we have people who are in the neighborhood just, just stopping in to chat and tell us how much better they feel. So that that's a very rewarding effect or benefit of practicing in this. So yes, it feels, it feels, it, I'm very happy about it is what I should say. Great. Now, does it, does it ever make you um, wonder what your practice over the last, you know, how long did you say you're in practice? Was it two or three decades? I practiced over 30 years. Okay. Anyway. Microsurgeon. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now. About a game for your phone, gonna make you say, Wow! The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash. Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash. Little by little, your empire grows large. Put the big celebrities inside your entourage. You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chichin Chong. Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong. The name of the game is Himping, that's the point. Download and play while you light yourself a joint. The business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Do you wish you would have been able to have this tool in your toolbox the whole time now, seeing the results? Uh, Well, I think that in my situation... I remember I didn't really do the surgeries I did. Didn't I, I operated on eyeballs and around the rest of the face. I did plastics around the face. And I did not have to prescribe pain medication because just by our anatomy, I lucked out. There was no pain with the surgery. But since I was in a multi-specialty group, I think my colleagues in other surgical fields and the primary care doctors would have benefited benefited a great deal by having this available. Now, I don't know if it, how it would work for acute pain, acute surgical pain, because you can't prescribe it for that. Right. So I have no experience, but certainly in the more towards the primary care side, I think it would have been very, very helpful. I think it was a real loss all those years that they didn't have access to this. 
and in the ability to integrate it into their practices. Um, as a doctor, do, are you starting to get questions from your colleagues now that they know that you're um, recommending cannabis? Well, that, that's a very interesting question because I now have colleagues who I've known for many, many years in neurology, primary care, and a few other specialties who are referring patients. They, they, they're referring patients who are not, <clears throat> excuse me, who are not getting relief from the conventional methods. And I also have colleagues in other specialties who are asking me when my practice is going to be large enough to bring them in. They want to, they're not satisfied in their specialties who are interested in working with us. That's, that's a, a, it's a phenomenon which I never expected. So wow. there's two things. They're referring and they're interested in working with us. Never expected that. I've had no negative feedback from any colleagues at all. That's really good to hear. And that's kind of what I've been um, hearing from other doctors. I spoke with uh, Dr. Joseph Rosado last week and he kind of said the same thing he said now when he goes to like um social functions with his colleagues they're they're interested in what he's doing real interested and i think it's kind of undeniable at this point the benefits of cannabis um it's obviously and i say this all the time it's not for everyone 100 percent of people aren't going to benefit from anything but it works really good for most everyone i've talked to now <clears throat> what's the typical case look like for you? Well, what's interesting is the first thing we're noticing is that I would say the majority of the people are 50s, 60s, sometimes younger, but we even have pe people who are older and we're now attracting patients in their 70s and 80s, the oldest being 86 who was in and her, she came with her daughter, her son-in-law is a doctor. And she came in for chronic pain. So the first thing is the age. It, it, it's skewed more towards the older. We do have some younger ones, but towards middle age and older. That was a surprise. And I would say the majority of people we see are chronic pain. They've tried everything, and it's just chronic pain. Haven't seen people with um, multiple sclerosis or ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, yet. Have seen, uh, well... We did have someone with, we, we have more than one who have chronic illnesses, uh, for example, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, bringing mm. them in is really the pain associated with it. You know, we're not even pretending to treat the illness, but the pain. So I would say pain, anxiety, PTSD, we're seeing people who have had legitimate trauma, um, serious um, traumatic experiences, and we're seeing them and it's very helpful with those people. So we're seeing it all over the board in terms of ages and conditions. That's good. Um, you know, because one of the <clears throat> the big things that the 28% or however many people check the wrong box on the ballot, you like to say against the movement and against cannabis is that it's, you know, people are just wanting to go get high. Um, they, they think of like maybe a, Pineapple Express movie gone bad or something. And once again, the body of work coming out of Florida's medical program, just like it has on every other medical program that's become legal, is the fastest growing demographic right now is, the I think, above 50 or maybe above 55 of cannabis users. 
and and it's a lot of people that have little to no experience with cannabis. Um, as far as the patients you're receiving, or do you, are you seeing any that have zero experience with cannabis coming to the yeah. practice? Yes, and that's uh, that's also interesting. What we're seeing is, I ask, I ask, have you tried it before? Was it helpful? And many say, well, I was on a trip to Colorado and tried it. Um, some of them get it locally, but the majority of them have not tried it. And they say the ones who have tried it say it was helpful. And that's why they're in. But the majority have not tried it. There are people who have gone the conventional route of treatment. And to go back to relate this to what we were speaking of, I would say the majority of the people, like I said, are pain but it's really pain from inflammation, from chronic problems, either back and things like that, but it, inflammatory diseases. I mentioned rheumatoid arthritis. We're seeing Crohn's disease is high on the list. We're seeing people with Crohn's, which is inflammatory disease of the bowel, and they are very uncomfortable, have a lot of pain, and it, it's very helpful for that. So the people we are seeing, to go back to your question, most of them have not used it, have not tried it and are just kind of, you know, feeling their way, let's say. They probably are going to be your biggest supporters and drivers of new patients. Um, because someone like me, I already kind of know what to expect. But I, I, I've seen a lot of people's lives changed that first time or two they use cannabis and realize it, it does provide some relief, a lot different than what pharmaceuticals do. Well, what... Sorry to interrupt. Uh, may I interrupt you? Yeah. One of the one of the things I was going to say that I, I like very much, which the people find very helpful, is this is the and I tell them that one of the things in our first meeting, one of the things I find very helpful and I like is that it gives them total control over their condition. And what I mean by that is, from your experience, you know opioids are every four hours or every six hours and other ones are every eight hours. And one of the things I like is they can treat their symptoms. So if you have someone at work, he or she may take a route of administration, sublingual or something like that that's longer acting, but they have a vape. I, I, you know, I, I make sure that we provide a vape through the registry and they can use that acutely for pain with quick onset. And what I have them do is keep a diary. So when they come back, they can tell us what the symptoms were, when they were, which time of the day, what they took, how much and how they took it. And that helps us fine tune the administration of the medications. But they find that very helpful, being able to treat the medication appropriately and when it occurs, whether it's keeping them awake at night or at work. Yeah, it's interesting you brought that up, especially about the uh – journal and keeping track of it i was speaking with <coughs> excuse me i was speaking with my therapist yesterday and the subject got brought up of like you know the cannabis use and how i use it and then i started thinking i was like i usually know what i have you know the vape cartridge the strain um or whether it's you know a concentrate but i know with the strain and to start tracking it because even though I've got almost 28 years of cannabis use under my, no, not 20, about 25 years of cannabis use under my belt, 
I still can't pinpoint exactly which ones make my thoughts race. Like I know it's and, and it's because it's not always a sativa, unlike you know the common perception. But there are certain strains that will make my anxiety worse. Some will make me restless, um, and then some will knock me out. And all of those have a place, <laughs> you know, throughout yeah. the day. And I would like to get a little bit better um, of my own personal, you know, anecdotal research, firsthand account down. And I, I think I'm going to find that there are specific strains that work really well for me and, and then some that don't. And some that may even be counterproductive. Now, well, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that that's interesting, too, what you brought up, because one of the things that we're finding is that in a given individual, different strains at the same doses have different effects, which is what you know you observe, but also the same dose of the same strain have, has different effects in different people. And mm-hmm. you see what I mean? And one of the things that's kind of like a learning curve, at least for me, is how variable it is. And I'm working out in the practice ways of dealing with this. One is the diary so I can individualize it. But I'm finding right off the bat, it's very hard to individualize a specific therapy regimen. So it's almost like an educated, directed trial and error. And then with the feedback of the person, we can fine tune it. And we're in that learning curve. And that's what I I was referring to earlier that about a roadmap, there is no roadmap, because A, it doesn't exist. It's so new for the doctors. But B, is there such variation? And that ties in, though, with what I was mentioning that I do like very much and the patients do like that they can fine-tune it and custom-tune it. But the the part of the uh, issue or part of the interesting thing about it is trying to fine-tune it for the individual since there is such variation in a given individual and inter-between the individuals. Agreed. You know, Robert, we have a, we have a patient that called us about three days after she got her uh, registry approval from the state. And she had immediately gone to the dispensary and she picked up her medicine. Three days later, she called and she said, you know, I just wanted to let you know, I feel better than I've ever felt in my life. And I've put the Alprazolam behind me, exception. Uh, She called back a couple of weeks later and said, listen, I operate equipment during the day. And as I'm going through this process and journaling, I think I'd like a high THC uh, during the day, a high CBD, excuse me, during the day when I'm actively working and a high THC by inhalation at night. And so I spoke with Dr. D and it's that patient input and that patient communication kind of letting us know what works for them, which brings me to the point that the learning curve that Dr. D spoke of and and the follow-up and communication and accessibility for your patients and to that information is so critical. 
Yeah, and I think this is um, – hold on. There's a few things that have been covered here. To some doctors, they probably hear what we're talking about and may get a little worried because they're used to really standardized medicine. Um, <clears throat> but for me, this is really hopeful that this may end up becoming the first really customizable, personalized medicine. Yes. And with how um, pervasive the endocannabinoid system is, it's virtually everywhere in our body. I hope that maybe we'll have some targeted delivery systems outside of what we already have. But I don't ever want to see medicine come in, the medicine community come in and take away the plant in its natural form. You mentioned Crohn's earlier. One of the best ways that people have relief from Crohn's or irritable bowel syndrome or any of the GI issues um, is reported through juicing of the raw plant. Uh, it's non-psychoactive, but for some reason, the flowers are really, really good when you juice them, and they do great things for you. Currently in Florida, this brings up a point about Florida that, you know, currently in Florida, we can't even, we can't, we can't have that product available. Um, as a physician, is it frustrating that you, like, the patient can't have all parts of the plant, despite the Constitution's definition saying all parts of the plant, whether living or not, because it eliminates a large portion of um, the plant's capabilities. Like I mentioned juicing. There's tons of other ways to use it that you actually need the raw material. Yeah, you know, I've never, let's just say I, I, I've lived a very straight life. Um, and this is all new to me, but I've always felt always that it should be liberalized and be available. And yes, it, it is kind of frustrating that the entire plant is not being used despite over 70% of people voting to be able to have it available, you know, have, you know, cannabis available. And I think we're just touching, touching the, the beginning of, of the uses and what I've been telling people is, look, it's a plant, and aspirin came from a plant. Digitalis, the first heart medication, came from a plant, and atropine, which we still use in the operating rooms, came from a plant initially. So it'll have uses. It's not going to cure everything, but I think if we could do more research, I think we would find more uses. And yes, I really do think that it should be available the plant because there are uses that I'm learning from people telling me. Basically, the people coming in, the more experienced people are, are telling us about, you know, uses and how they've used it. So it should be available. One of the interesting things you mentioned also is the endocannabinoid system in the body, that it's, it's virtually everywhere. One of the things also which I mentioned to people, because they're nervous, they're afraid, you know, they think of the movie Reefer Madness and they think they're going to you know, take the stuff, go home and just maybe put a little bit under the tongue and they're going to be out of control. And one of the things I tell them, which I learned from reading is, yes, the, the systems throughout the body, but we have no receptors in the brainstem and the brainstem hangs down from the bottom of the brain and basically 
that's where we control breathing and things like that. We don't really control it consciously. It's controlled from there. And there are receptors for opioids there, and that's why if you take enough of them, you go to sleep and you don't wake up, you just stop breathing. But you really can't do permanent damage also, and they feel much better. And I tell them, look, if you take the entire, let's say, the entire uh, amount that has been prescribed in one shot, you're not going to feel very good. You're going to be very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You're going to stop breathing. And that's very reassuring to new people who've never used it before that they're not going to overdose and stop breathing. You know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Tons of it. <clears throat> yeah, no, no reported deaths. Um, the only deaths linked to cannabis in any regard are um, the synthetic ca- cannabinoids that people spray on leaves and sell as spice. But... No, cannabis isn't going to kill you. It's really, really safe as long as it's a you know clean. The, the biggest danger with cannabis is buying it on the black market, to be honest, and not knowing that it's really clean medicine or having testing results on it, especially with patients with compromised immune systems, which is why I'm so thankful that Florida has any form of a legal market right now because at least you know when you buy it you know what you're getting there is a lab that's tested it because as much as i love the guy i get my weed from i don't have a lab sheet with it <clears throat> yeah he doesn't know what's in there either and no sure doesn't <laughs> yeah i try to work that into my discussions A lot of the discussion I have with uh, new people coming in, new patients coming in, is geared towards overcoming their fear of trying it and what they've learned. You know, naive patients who've never used it, which, by the way, would be me. Um, I've never used the plant. Naive patients um, are afraid. They're just afraid to use it and to try it. And a lot of it, I spend a lot of time giving them history and overcoming their fears. And I talk about the brainstem, I talk about additives, that this is pure, that each time they use it, they're getting the same amount of the same plant, the same cultivar, the same strain, and it's reassuring towards, you know, towards the whole thing for them. Yeah, and we're dealing with generational propaganda that we're having to re-educate people on. My great-grandmother, no, maybe my grandmother was, and my great-grandmother were around when the first... Um, prohibition days came through on cannabis and then you know they had children and then they had me so society's been against this plant for a while so getting somebody that's really new to it it, i mean i think it's really important that you have these conversations with them and do let them know about the receptors not being in the brain stem because everyone knows that what happens when you take too many opiates you literally just stop breathing and go to sleep <clears throat> and I didn't really know that that was why until you just broke it down for me. I knew it had something to do with the brain and how it, the receptors controlled it, but I didn't know it was specifically the brain stem. So thank you. I love learning new things. <laughs> You're welcome. I read that in one of the books I've read. It was just a little trivia thing I picked up. But it's actually very helpful when speaking and explaining and saying you're not going to stop breathing, you're really not, and then I make a Jimi Hendrix joke or something, because most of the people are old enough to remember Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin. That's the crowd we're seeing. Yeah, it's, um, 
and they're the ones that need it the most. Uh, there was a study done, some statisticians, they compiled a bunch of different peer-reviewed articles on states that had medical marijuana programs. Their conclusion, what they found was the average physician prescribed 3,000 less units of uh, pills per month. And I want to say Medicare saved, between Medicare and Medicaid, it was in the hundreds of millions of dollars because that's how fewer doctor's visits were and the um, senior population by and large said that they had a higher quality of life. I can attest to that coming from that compliance uh, and billing background. Absolutely. Absolutely. Overdoses go down as well. I read, it's just what I read, that over they had 30%, over 30% less overdoses from opioids in those states. Now, of course, it depends on how they gather statistics, but I did read that. That goes down, too. Yeah, I think once this program really gets its legs under it and when it goes adult use, um, which will remove that last barrier of people that are worried about being in a registry, because that, that prevents a lot of people from getting it, too. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now about a game for your phone gonna make you say, wow! The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash. Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash. Little by little, your empire grows large. Put the big celebrities inside your entourage. You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chichin Chong. Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong. The name of the game is Himping, that's the point. Download and play while you light yourself a joint. Business and cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot proved by the man who run high times. Oh yeah, get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Florida's going to probably have one of the biggest decline in opiates because we have some of the most opioid-related overdoses. Um, here in Orange County, wonderful Orange County, we just defeated a dispensary ban, and one of the points I made to them was in a county that has seen a increase of 150% in the number of overdoses year over year from last year, I would think it'd be a no-brainer to let this stuff come in because they were wanting to ban dispensaries. We ended up getting them to allow them. But the, the opioid, I mean, we set another record despite all the advances with the medical cannabis, um, and a lot of that, as you know, too, is unrelated to pharmaceuticals and has to do with fentanyl-laced heroin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that comes out of a unintended consequence of cracking down on opiates. People go to the streets. I know plenty of people that started off their doctor giving them opiates and then they end up with a needle in their arm because their habit was too expensive. Well, yes, I have a lot of, strangely enough, you brought up fentanyl, which is a medication I have a lot of experience with because we use it in the operating room. And in the operating rooms, it's phenomenal. You have experts and they're administering pure at a known dosage in a controlled situation where they control breathing and all that stuff. But, you know, now lacing it with that stuff, that, that's brutal, that medication and believe it or not, it's the number one medication for overdoses for doctors. When you have doctors who self-medicate, the number one overdose is, is fentanyl and always has been. So it's interesting you brought it up, and that's why it's so dangerous. It's immediate onset, and it really does suppress breathing. There's a fine line between therapeutic and non-therapeutic with that. 
Yeah, could you even expand on the fentanyl thing a little bit? I think it's really important for us in Florida because that stuff's everywhere. Like, how dangerous is fentanyl compared to, you know, your every, all the other opiates? Well, the thing about fentanyl is, like I said, in the operating room, it's a phenomenal medication in the hands of, you know, board-certified, trained anesthesiologists. Because not only are they familiar with the medication and the side effects, they're using it intravenously. They have an exact dose. The body receives the exact dose, and they're controlling respirations. They have people, you know, they're controlling respirations, oxygen levels, heart rate, and things like that. But because it is such a quick onset and such a strong medication, the line between if you're not controlling the, the physiology of the body, the line between what's therapeutic, meaning, oh, I'll take some fentanyl and treat my pain or something like that, and the line between those receptors getting hit and you stop breathing is very, very close. So outside of a controlled situation like an operating room with really trained professionals, it is a really dangerous drug. And I personally know an anesthesiologist. I knew her when I went to medical school years ago. And she apparently developed you know, a drug problem and died. This is a trained person. And she was using fentanyl, and they found her overdosed, which was thought not to be intentional because there's no note or no uh, evidence of any problems. And even in those hands, unless you're monitoring it in an operating room, it's a very dangerous drug, even with a professional. So it's a great drug in the operating room. I don't want to say it's a terrible drug because it's a great drug when it's in controlled circumstances for specific purposes. But outside of that, it's a very dangerous drug, and it's because the therapeutic and the lethal, the line is very close between the therapeutic and the lethal effects of it in unskilled hands outside, the, even in skilled hands outside the operating room, if that's, if that's what you're, you know, interested in. Yeah, no, that, that, that was it. Um, <clears throat> you know, fentanyl is nasty stuff <clears throat> on the streets, like you're saying, outside of the hands of really trained professionals and even then it's been known to um you know take the lives of physicians a lot of people don't know that um anesthesiologists have one of the highest rates of um accidental overdoses don't they uh usually it's the highest and no one knows why that is no one knows if the specialty attracts people who have this fascination uh, let's say an unusual fascination with medications or if it's accessibility or if it's the hours that they get called in. We all, I train 36 hour shifts with no sleep, no stopping, no eating or anything like that in the old days, but that was in training. And then you get a little bit of more rational lifestyle. Well, anesthesiologists, many of them throughout their whole careers get called when they're on call, they work 24 hours straight without a break. And then they get a day off afterwards to recuperate you don't really recuperate and that really gets old when you're in your 40s 50s things like that maybe that's involved but no one knows the cause it may just be availability no one knows why but you are correct they are at the top of accidental overdoses um of really all medications well maybe if they can start using cannabis they might pick up a joint instead um, not to make light of it but no, that's you, unfortunate. You may be right there. I, I I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely be like, Doc, you need a break here. Here's a joint or a bong. Don't don't pick up the syringe. You'll be 
Yeah. But that brings up another point, too, not to get completely off the cannabis subject, but in the medical industry, a, a, a lot of you and your colleagues are overworked, way overworked. 24-hour shift of doing anything is not good for most people, much less when you're dealing with people's lives in your hands. That's got to be a, str- a really big stress. Well, it's tiring, that's for sure. You know, that, that that's an issue that's interesting. There's always been, let's say, pressure saying to cut hours down of the doctors in training, certainly. And there's been a lot of pressure politically about it and saying people are fatigued, they're making mistakes. Well, a number of years ago, this is after my, my time in training, they did cut the hours down. They put maximum of 80 hours a week. And the feds did it. And after 80 hours, you better leave because the hospitals get very nervous. They don't want the doctors in training there because they're in violation of all kinds of stuff. And they, they shoo them away. Well, an unintended consequence, I, I have very mixed feelings about the crazy hours and cutting them. Because one of the unintended consequences that's coming out now is that when you have shift turnovers, that's where a lot of errors occur. And it's like kids playing telephone where one whispers in one's ear by the end of the line, a completely different story comes out. So every time there's turnover, in other words, a new group of, well, nurses, it's a little different. Uh, but with doctors, they're dealing with very complicated situations. Something gets dropped or has the potential to get dropped. And the complication rate, certainly in the surgical specialties in the training hospitals, went up. And they think it's because of the lack of continuity. So now they're trying to balance, how do we do this? And we have to balance fatigue versus turnover. And that's becoming an issue right now as the complication rate goes up. And the also unintended consequence is they cut the hours down about 30% in the training, in the surgical training programs. You know, if you go down to 80 hours a week, you've cut it down about 30%. But the programs are so many years as it is. I trained for 10 years after college. So the programs are so long, if you cut the hours down, but you don't lengthen the number of years, the exposure goes down. And a lot of learning is just exposure, being there and being with experts who can handle complications. So that's another unintended consequence is they've cut the absolute hours of training down. And this is starting to come home to roost also with people coming out of the training program saying they don't feel comfortable in the surgical field. So I don't know the answer, but that's a very interesting thing that you brought up there. It's not relevant to the cannabis, but it is an issue. Yeah, that's um, that's a really tough logistical nightmare right there for an administrator. And then the doctors. <clears throat> but I think we just might need more physicians. Or definitely more people using cannabis. Maybe there's not so many people needing as much medical attention as what we're used to. Well, we're talking more in the training right? And if you have more physicians, you still have the issue of the number of hours of exposure in the learning period. Oh, I mean, I I, I think they should definitely lengthen it. I mean, I'm not saying cut overall hours. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, just face value. That's what they did, though. They just cut the hours down and didn't lengthen the number of years. So they cut the hours per week. And, well, you cut them by 30% at the end of... 10 years, you have 30% less exposure. But in practice, you're, you're right. In outside, after 
the training period in the practice of medicine. We're very short physicians, and that is a problem because you can't just materialize doctors and you can't just certify people and say, okay, now you have the same education. That's not working too well. It's like taking pilots for private airplanes saying we have a shortage of jumbo jet pilots. Okay, you're all certified to fly jumbo jets. That's not working that well either. Again, that's not cannabis related, but it's an interesting topic to speak about. Robert, if I may, on, do. on that subject, uh, there is a term that we use administratively in the state of Florida, the corporate practice of medicine. Oh, Okay. One of the things that led Dr. D and I to compassionate care and to this practice is the fact that when the physicians are in the hospital setting, in the group practice setting, there are performance metrics. Think of it like a factory worker that has to uh, produce 10,000 items a day. So whereas in the old days of good old medicine, you'd go, you'd see your physician, the physician would say, how's your family? They would look you in the eye. Now, the corporate pressure uh, from the hospital or the group administrator is, well, You've got to chart your medical records and you've got to see 40 patients a day or you're not going to meet your performance metrics. So one of the reasons that uh, we sit here now is because over time you've got issues of the quality of patient care because everything has become corporate. We've become very corporate in 2017. And anytime medicine is reduced to, and I understand that everyone has to make a living and everyone has to eat, but when the value of an office visit is not necessarily in the best interest of the patient, but in the bottom line of the corporation, it, it just tugs at your heartstrings and, uh, you know, it's a really tough thing. Combining that with overworking physicians, inadequate training programs for the new generation of physicians. Uh, I'm not referring to my age or Dr. D's, but we're kind of old school. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the world is a little different as he was referring to those 36-hour shifts. And formal training, real training. Uh, and again, I'm not knocking uh, the current uh, medical community. I, I respect the medical community. I'm a part of it. Um, I'm just not satisfied with this new normal. And I think that tying it back to medical cannabis and what we do, I think that in the state of Florida, this is our opportunity to give the citizens and the patients an alternative to conventional prescription drug therapy, to give people with PTSD, anxiety, depression, 
an alternative to traditional mental health therapies, a.k.a. psychotropic drugs. Um, it's an alternative. And, and I appreciate this opportunity to be a part of this community. Yeah, and we appreciate you um, doing what only a small, small, small percentage of the medical community at, at up to this point in Florida has been willing to do. Because I'm sure, as you know, there's only maybe four or 500 doctors a actively recommending, despite there being maybe a couple thousand that have taken the course. Um, you spoke about the PTSD and anxiety, so I'll, I'll end it on, <clears throat> you know, my battle with it. I wake up in the morning sometimes just in a rage. Um, and if I do that and remember to smoke before I crawl out of bed, it's usually a better day. When I was on the other prescription medicines, there, I mean, it, there, there was no coming back out of it. I could like numb myself to it, but the difference is it's profound. My biggest issue using cannabis as a patient to treat my PTSD is, and this is something I wanted to speak to earlier when I was talking about my therapist wanting me to write stuff down, is I, I forget that it wears off, <laughs> you know, yeah. to, to, to re-administer before it wears off because I've been used to using it so casually because it's never truly been treated as a medicine in my 20-something years of using it, despite it being medicinal use now looking back at why I've habitually used cannabis day in and day out. So I, I'm glad that you have your patients do that. I, I think that's huge. They're going to learn a lot. Um, and I'm hoping over time you'll see some um, correlations to the data coming in. Do you plan to do any case studies or anything like that um, and really try and do your own research since there isn't any out there? What we plan to do is what I've mentioned, the diary, which I asked them for, we're going to try to formalize it and make it such that when you come back, if you want a renewal, you have to bring the diary so that we can go over it. But also, I'm going to make it into a form so we can collect data. And I want to start collecting data, which you're referring to, so we can, when we have a big enough you know, series, you collect some data and then extract some useful information, which may be helpful to other people. So the answer is yes, if we can get a big enough database of patients, we're making moves in that direction to formalize the collection of data. Excellent. I'm sure that will help the future patients yet to come see you at some point. Um, I, I've taken up about an hour of y'all's time. Um, I really appreciate it. I'm I'm gonna probably end it here. I'm gonna go through and cut some parts out, shorten some things up. Um, is there anything else that you would like to say to the listeners? Um, anything else that you would like to talk about? I think we covered a lot. We did. The only thing I would say is that you know this this um. Discussion that we've had is coming from a physician, a very experienced physician, like I said, over 30 years experience, uh, pretty straight guy uh, in the sense of, and personally, the schedule I kept and the microsurgery I did 
I had to avoid all kinds of things, even caffeine on my surgical days. I wouldn't even have coffee and I would sip it so that I wouldn't get a headache from not having caffeine, but I wouldn't get a tremor. Tremor, that's the type of surgery, how fine the surgery I did was. And I've stepped outside that role and stepped into this new role as a cannabis-approved, uh, educating himself and you know staff doctor, and just add that we're very impressed with the results. And like I mentioned earlier, it's not going to cure or address everything, but I really am impressed with having practiced all these years with the people, with how happy they are, the relief that they're getting, and their enthusiasm. Even people who were afraid, first-time users, uh, who were really afraid of, of trying it because of all of the, let's say, the press, the bad press it's gotten. So I would add that, that you know everything we're talking about is coming from a physician who was really, I don't want to say on the other side, like it, it, it was adversarial, but it, it was, it's, this is a whole new world to me, and I'm very impressed with it. That's really what I want to say. Thank you. I appreciate that. And it is important for the listeners to understand, you know, your story and how many years that you ha do have practice being a board certified physician and surgeon. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. No coffee, no, no anything. You really did have to be really straight laced. We thank you for that now. Now that you're out of that, you can, you can, you can try some cannabis too one day, Doc. And now I'm trying to get in touch with Chin Yeah, there you go. We can, put you, we can put you in touch with them. Yeah, drinking coffee from Volkswagen mugs, and I'm going to go get a microbus and the whole thing. That's awesome. And how can people get in touch with you? It uh, uh, well, you can reach out to us at 813-491-4006. Uh, you can check out our website, CompassionateCareFLA.com. Uh, we are accessible. We're available. And uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Compassionate Care of Florida. And through your podcast. And through your <laughs> podcast. Yeah, I'll have links to all of that in the, the description. And... <clears throat> I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me, and hopefully we can um, put some more time on later next year and see what all the data you've been collecting says. It should be interesting. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time, and it was very enjoyable. Thank you very much. Thanks, Robert. You're welcome, Dr. D. And, Lori, I appreciate it, and um, look forward to it next time. All right. Thanks. All right, have, have a nice great holiday. day. You've been listening well. to The Marijuana you Solution. Thanks. Bye. Oh, well. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.